Last Sunday uh, in his sermon, uh, Pastor Rogers quoted a statement from A.W. Tozer, got my intention and I wrote it down and that's what I want to begin with this morning. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So here's a question that each of us can ask ourselves right now. What does come into our mind when we think about God? And that's what I want us to consider this morning so that we know that we have the right thoughts or the right thinking about God. Now, in one sense, this subject is extremely easy because there's so much we could say about God, so it's not like we have to search hard for material. But in another sense, it's also an extremely difficult subject because there's so much we could say about God. So where do we begin? Keeping in mind that we have an inexhaustible subject, I've chosen a passage that was read to us. And uh, this passage, you know, I, along with many, many others before me, would consider to be probably one of the best summaries about the nature of the true and living God. If you would turn to Acts chapter 17 as we consider together verses 22 to 31. Acts chapter 17. Now what's the context here? If we go back to verse 16, we read that Paul is in the city of Athens, the cultural, philosophical, religious epicenter of the day. And his purpose, just like the other places he has visited, is to proclaim the truth of God and the gospel to the people there. And we read in verse 16 that his spirit was provoked because he saw that the city was given over to idols. Meaning idolatry was rampant. You know, not, not just a few idols here and there, but a complete saturation of idols. There used to be a saying in ancient Rome, it's easier to find a god in Rome than a man. Because everywhere you looked, there were idols. Idols, idols, and more idols everywhere. So verse 17 tells us that he was reasoning in the synagogue and also daily in the marketplace trying to convince the people of the truth. But what Paul was saying was so strange and unfamiliar to these people, especially verse 18 mentions two groups of popular philosophers of that day, the Epicureans and the Stoics. This, this message that Paul was proclaiming was so strange to them that they asked Paul to come to their main court, the Areopagus. And they wanted him to explain further what exactly he was, what exactly he was talking about. Uh, this God that you are proclaiming, this teaching that you are giving us, this, this is something we haven't heard before. So tell us more about it. You know, the uh, Epicureans believed that the chief end of man was happiness and pleasure. Uh, even if there was a God or gods, he really didn't intervene in human affairs. The Stoics, on the other hand, uh, tried to understand the world using reason and logic. You know, they said we should not be uh, controlled by the desire for pleasure or fear of pain. But we just need to live in the moment, as it were, trying to find out what nature was doing, what nature was trying to accomplish, and just be one or just be part of that. So when we come to verses uh, 22 to 31 passage that Joseph read for us, that is Paul's response to their request for him to further explain what he's talking. 
So here he has this, this crowd of you know, skeptics, this crowd of unbelievers, this crowd of highly educated or so they thought philosophers. And what does he choose to say about the true and living God? Now there's so much we could uh, say from this text and so many different ways we could approach it, but for our purposes this morning, I want to highlight six attributes of God that Paul explains to the people that are listening to him. Acts chapter 17, and we'll read verses 22 and 23. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. So Paul begins by acknowledging their religiosity. In all things you are very religious. They had erected various objects of worship and even one with the inscription to the unknown God. You know, many of the Athenians were supernaturalists. They believed in supernatural powers that intervened in natural laws. So their altar to the unknown God was sort of their religious way of acknowledging that there was some being out there that was beyond their comprehension. It's like they're saying, uh, we don't know who or what this being is, but we do know that he or it exists, and we feel that he is worthy of some honor or worship. In other words, very religious, but extremely clueless. And we do see this in our world today. You know, people doing all sorts of religious activity, uh, many of it perhaps even sincere, but with a total lack of understanding of what it is they're doing or why they're doing it. And look at the end of verse 23, Paul says, The one you worship without knowing, him I am going to proclaim to you. In other words, the one you call the unknown God can actually be known. And that's the first characteristic or attribute of God that I want to point out from this passage. Paul says that the true and living God of this universe is knowable. God can be known. God is not someone that mankind must be totally ignorant of or so distant from that nothing about him can be comprehended or understood. Now, we won't know or understand everything about this God. In fact, Paul is going to talk more about that a few verses later. But Paul is saying God has revealed enough of himself that humanity can comprehend certain things about him. And both in the Old and New Testaments, we see that God is one who can be known. I'll just quote some passages for you. Jeremiah 9.23 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories or boasts, boasts about this, that he understands and knows me. Jeremiah 24, 7, Then I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. Daniel eleven thirty two. But the people who know their God shall be strong. And of course, all culminating in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in John 17, 3, when he defined for us the meaning of eternal life. And this is eternal life, Jesus said, that they may know you, the only true God. 
So the true and living God of this universe is one that can be known. And what exactly can we know about this God? Verse 24, Paul says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. The second attribute or characteristic of God that we see here is God is presented not only as one that can be known, but he is presented as the creator. Now it makes sense that Paul would start with creation because he's primarily talking to a group of people who had no previous exposure to the Old Testament like the Jews did. But Paul is saying everyone, no matter where they live, no matter whether you come from a religious background or not, everyone has access to one thing, and that is the creation around them. Paul is saying this world did not come into being on its own. It and everything in it did not get here through some unknown process or accident. The world and everything in it, Paul says in verse 24, exists because God purposed that it exists. In other words, there is someone responsible for the things that are here. See, the Athenians thought that you know, through their various idols, they were trying to create God or gods. But Paul is telling them, God is not someone you create, because He created everything. Now if you think about it, if you go back to Genesis 1.1, how does the revelation of God to humanity in the form of His Word begin? In the beginning, God created. So before God is presented as a father or a savior or a shepherd, He is presented as the Creator. The very first statement in the Bible is the declaration of God as Creator. And when people refuse to accept or believe that, then most likely everything else about God will ultimately be questioned as well. And we know it's not just Genesis 1.1. Isaiah 40.28 says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth. Hebrews 11.3, By faith we understand the worlds were framed by the Word of God. And Revelation 4.11, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. So the Word of God is clear. The world did not just come into being on its own. It was purposefully created by God. But not only is God creator, verse 24 says, He is also Lord of heaven and earth. Look at verse 25. Nor is He worshipped with men's hands as though He needed anything. The second part of verse 25, Since He gives to all life, breath, and all things. Come down to verse 28. For in Him we live and move and have our being. In other words, God is not only the creator of creation, but He is also presented as the owner and sustainer of His creation. And that's the third attribute that we see here. Going back to verse 24, he is called Lord, meaning he has authority. He has control over creation. Verse 24 says, he does not dwell in temples made with hands. He does not live in the creation in a temple or any other man-made structure. Because there is no way that creation could contain him. Remember Solomon's words in 1 Kings 8.27, The heaven of heavens 
cannot contain you, O God. Because God created it, He determines what creation should do and should not do. In other words, the creation is accountable to Him. But not only is He the owner, He is also the sustainer. It's not as if God created everything and then just abandoned it or doesn't care for it. Not only is everything created by Him, but everything is kept or sustained by Him as well. God does not need any created thing to keep Him in existence. Everything in creation needs Him to continue its existence. That's what Paul is saying. God does not need any created thing to keep Him in existence, but everything in creation needs Him to continue its existence. Again, the Bible repeatedly reminds us that God is the owner and sustainer of His creation. In Job 41.1, God says, Who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine. Psalm 24.1, David writes, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Colossians 1.17, He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And Hebrews 1.3 reminds us that everything is sustained by the word of his power. Yes, God did create the world, but He also has control and ownership of everything in it and sustains everything in it as well. So God is knowable. God can be known. God is the creator of the world and everything in it. God is also the owner and sustainer of everything. But now in verse 27, verses 26 and 27, Paul turns his focus to another aspect of God, and he mentions one specific part of God's creation. Verse 26, And he that is God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Verse 27, So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. The specific part of God's creation that he mentions is humanity, mankind. And really we can think of humanity as the jewel in the crown of all God created. Now what is it that makes human beings or humanity special or set apart from everything else God created? Well firstly in Genesis 1.27 we are told that human beings are created in the image of God. That means that like God, we have intellect, we have reason, we have a will, we have emotions. In their original state, humanity was created pure and sinless. And we were made to reflect some of the attributes of God, like His love, His care, His kindness, His generosity, His peace. Secondly, humans are unique because they are created as eternal beings. Animals, plants, everything else we see around us is here only temporarily. But Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says, God has put eternity in the heart, not of any animal or, or plant, but God has put eternity in the heart of man. So man was originally created to exist forever. But Paul mentions another reason here, apart from those two, as to why mankind is unique. Verse 26, he says, He has made from one blood every nation of men. But I want to focus on verse 27. What is the reason 
or at least one reason that Paul says that God created every nation of men and appointed the times and places where they should live. Verse 27 says, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him. In other words, the characteristic or attribute of God that we see here is God is a relational being. He desires to have relationship, communion, fellowship, not with animals or plants, but with people. God was uniquely interested or had a unique concern for humanity from the very beginning. You remember the first question that God asks in the Bible in Genesis 3 verse 9. It's a question to humanity, the question to Adam, where are you? You know, Adam and Eve knew they had disobeyed God's command and they were trying to hide from him. And God's question was not because he didn't know where they were, but it was, it was a question of relationship. God had designed mankind to have communion with him so that he could love them and they in turn could love him and worship and obey him. So in Acts 17:27 Paul says God desires that mankind should seek God to live in harmony with him. Not because God is lacking or because God needs us. You know, as verse 25 says God does not need anything including us. God does not need anything. But Paul says we are the ones who need God. Because apart from him our existence is meaningless and futile. So God is a relational God. Verse 29. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. So yes, God is noble, God is creator, God is owner and sustainer, God is relational. But this God, Paul says, is also unfathomable or incomprehensible. Verse 29 says, We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver shaped by the imagination or the devising of man. Now Paul started off this section by saying that God is knowable. So is this a contradiction here? Because it seems he is saying that you really can't understand who God is. Well, no, what Paul is saying is even though God truly is knowable, He is so great, He is so awesome, He is so much above us that we can never fully comprehend everything about Him. And the idea in verse 29 is there is no possible way, despite all our genius and inventions and progress or all of the abilities that humans have, there is no possible way that we, on our own, could have come up with a God like the true and living God. We, we simply don't have the capability to create a God the way that God should be. You know, we, we do see the gods that other religions and societies have, have created, and we know how limited they are. But Paul is saying the God of the universe is greater than us in every way. Position, power, riches, knowledge. The list goes on. And the scripture is filled with references of God's greatness and our, if I can call it, smallness. You know, Job 36, 26 says, Behold, God is great and we do not know him, nor can the number of his years be discovered. Psalm 145, verse 3, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is un." 
unsearchable. And Paul himself in Romans 11 at the end of that chapter writes, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? In other words, if you've ever said, I don't understand God or why God is doing this, that itself is a proof that he's God. Because if we understood everything about him, then what kind of a God would he be? It's also a reminder that we are not able to understand who God is or what he is like or even find him unless God first takes the initiative to reveal himself to us. So in verse 29, Paul says to the people around, don't think that the true God is something that you can come up with. Even the most educated, the most brilliant, the most creative, the most imaginative among you, there's no way you'd be able to come up with this kind of a God. So God is noble, God is creator, God is owner and sustainer, God is relational, God is unfathomable or incomprehensible. How does Paul conclude his explanation of who God is? Acts 17 verse 30. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So after presenting God as noble, as creator, as owner, and sustainer, as relational, as unfathomable, here Paul presents God as a righteous judge. Because he says in verse 31, he will judge the world in righteousness. Now, if there's a judge, it means a crime or a wrong has been committed. And in this case, it's the sin that mankind has done, which has caused us to fall short of the perfect standard of God. You know, the Bible presents God as holy, absolute purity, set apart from anything and everything that is unclean. He told Israel in Leviticus 19 verse 2, You shall be holy because I am holy. 1 Samuel 2.2, there is no one holy like the Lord. The prophet Habakkuk declared in Habakkuk 1.13, God's eyes are too pure to even look on evil. We're not even talking about doing evil. God, you are so holy, you can't even look on evil. And Hebrews 12.14 says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So because God is holy, he demands holiness from people. It's, it's not an option. And if we fail to meet that perfect standard of holiness, the Bible says we all have, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's standard, we must pay the price. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin, of falling short of God's standard is death. Now, you know, today we might say, Paul, you, you were doing so well. You were talking about how, how great this God is and how he created everything and how he cares for everything and, and, and how he wants to have a relationship with people and you had to bring this up. This is how you're going to end your explanation on God by, by talking about his righteous judgment. I don't think you're going to get many people to believe in God if you talk about this aspect of him. But we know why Paul did that. Because if you recognize that God is knowable, if you recognize that God is the creator, if you recognize he is the owner and sustainer, if you recognize that he is relational, 
he recognized that he is unfathomable and yet overlook or ignore the fact that he is a righteous judge, you have missed out on an entire aspect of his nature and who he is. The Bible never shies away from the fact that God is a judge. But as Paul says, the Bible also emphasizes he is a just or righteous judge. He is not a judge that just acts on his own emotion or according to the feel of the moment. Psalm 9 verse 8 says, He shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall administer judgment for the people in uprightness. Psalm 98.9, With righteousness he shall judge the world. Jeremiah 11.20, But, O Lord of hosts, you who judge righteously. So God indeed is a righteous judge, but who is the one carrying out the judgment? Well, verse 31 tells us, Paul says, It is the man, capital M, whom God has ordained. And who is that man? The Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how do we know the man whom he has ordained is the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Paul himself gives us the answer at the end of verse 31, by raising him from the dead. This man whom he has ordained is the person that God raised from the dead. So this obviously brings up the question, why then did this man, Jesus, have to die? Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So God, even though He is absolute, holy, absolutely holy and absolute purity, because He is a relational God, because He cares for His creation, for mankind, He didn't want us to be separated from Him forever. Because He initially created us to have communion and fellowship, a relationship with Him. Again, not because He needed us, but because we needed Him. That's why John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son, Jesus, to the world. 1 John 4.14, The Father sent the Son as Savior of the world. So God was making a way through Jesus for us to be reconciled to Him because He knew there was no way we could reach Him on our own. So here comes Jesus, the perfect Son of God, taking on the form of a man, taking on flesh, being born as a baby, living a perfect life on earth, but whose ultimate purpose was to offer Himself to God as the payment for our sins. And that's why Paul says in Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates His own love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul lays out the gospel, he says the gospel is this, that Christ died for our sins. He was buried, He rose again the third day, all according to the Scriptures. So because of His death and resurrection, He has paid the penalty for sin, and He has conquered death. So that even though we might die in these physical bodies, we have assurance that we will live with Him forever in His eternal presence. And God offers this gift to us as a gift, as Romans 6.23 says. We simply receive it by God's grace through faith, not of any good deeds or work or payment that we hand over to God. And that's why verse 30 mentions the fact of repentance. The end of verse 30, God commands all men everywhere to repent. 
to turn from their sin and to turn to God in faith. Now, why is it that Paul specifically mentioned repentance? If we come for a moment to Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. The Lord Jesus Christ, just before He was ascended into heaven, His final charge to His disciples, normally we think of the Great Commission and Matthew 28, but really there are four versions of the Great Commission because we find a different version even in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in Luke's version of the Great Commission, Luke chapter 24, verse 46, the Lord Jesus Christ says, Thus he said to them, that's his disciples and the others who were gathered there, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, verse 47, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name in all nations. The Lord Jesus Christ himself laid out what the gospel is. You know, it's sad in our society today, particularly in a country like ours, where people hear someone preach and they wonder, is that really the gospel? It's, it's not that hard. If the person has preached repentance and forgiveness of sins, that's the gospel. If they haven't preached that, that's not the gospel. Because the Lord Jesus Christ said, repentance and forgiveness of sins is what must be preached in my name. So, coming back to Acts chapter 17, and verse 30, it's no surprise then that Paul would preach or mention repentance. And this offer of salvation is available to all because John 3.16 says that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So why should people repent? Well, Paul mentions two reasons coming back to Acts 17. He mentions two reasons in verse 30. We should repent because... God has been patient with mankind. These times of ignorance he has overlooked. God has been patient. And also, verse 30, because God commands repentance. So we should repent because God has been patient with mankind. God commands repentance. And then a third reason is mentioned in verse 31. Because a day of judgment is coming. This Jesus, God's Son, will come again to this world, this time not as Savior, but as a judge to set up his kingdom here on earth. For those who believe in him as Savior before that, he comes to bless, to gather them to himself. But for those who refuse to believe, he comes in judgment to punish. So what is the truth about the God the Athenians thought was unknown? Well, we've seen six truths about God from this passage, and this is by no means everything there is to say about God. But at least as far as this passage is concerned, we see that God is knowable. The true and living God is one that human beings, because of God's revelation of himself, we have a chance to know and understand, not everything, but something about this God. He's not unknown. He is knowable. Secondly, Paul says he is creator. Everything that we see around us did not get here by accident or by chance or just because of a random series of events. Everything is here because there is a person who created it. God is knowable. God is creator. Thirdly, God is owner and sustainer. He didn't just create everything and then abandoned it. He sustains. He, he controls the things that he has created. Fourthly, God is a relational God. 
He's not an impersonal God. He's not a God who wants nothing to do with people. He's a God who from the very beginning has shown care and love and concern for human beings. Fifthly, God is incomprehensible or unfathomable. We should not think, you know, no matter how much our society progresses, no matter how intelligent we are, that we will ever get to a point where we will understand everything about God. You know, sometimes we say, well, when I get to heaven, we'll, when we get to heaven, we'll understand everything. I don't know. When we get to heaven, we'll be in the presence of God, but even then, will we really be able to comprehend everything about God? I don't think so. We'll know a lot more than we know now. But Paul says in Acts 17, verse 29, we should never fool ourselves into thinking that there will come a point where we can understand everything about God because He is just too great, too incomprehensible. And finally, Paul concludes by saying He is a righteous judge. Because mankind has broken His standard, because mankind has gone away from Him in sin and rebellion, mankind deserves to die, to spend an eternity apart from God. But because this God is relational through the man whom He has appointed, Jesus Christ, whom He first sent to this world as Savior, Jesus willingly, voluntarily took the place of each one of us. And because he died and because of his resurrection, if we accept his offer of eternal life, Paul says, we can have the forgiveness of sins. And we won't have to face Jesus as judge, we face him as Savior. Yes, many aspects of God are unknown, but there is so much that can be known. And it's not always how much you know that matters, but the truthfulness of what you do know. The story is told of an atheist philosopher who was walking through the countryside one day and, and met a rather rough-looking, uneducated countryman uh, going to church. And the philosopher asked this countryman where he was going, and he replied, uh, to church to worship God. And upon hearing God mentioned, you know, the, the philosopher who was an atheist, you know, sneered at him and with a tone of arrogance, asked him, um, tell me, how much do you really know about this God? I've studied a lot. I'm highly educated, and I can't seem to really even you know, figure out if there's enough proof for the existence of God. How much does someone like you know about God? So he said, I'll ask you a question. Tell me, is your God a great God or a little God? Well, the countryman thought for a minute and said, um, he's both. Well, how can he be both? You know, the philosopher was kind of surprised. The countryman replied, well, he's so great, and he pointed to the, to the clear blue sky above them, he's so great that he can't even fit in the entire sky, and yet so little that he can dwell in my heart. It's not the most theologically refined answer. But I think the countryman got it. He understood who God was. He understood a lot more than the educated philosopher. So as Paul said here, the God who is unknown is really not unknown. He can be known. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I hope and pray that what we have considered about God this morning, as little as it is, it will help us have the right thoughts about God, the God who is not.